Thanks for listening to Faith in the Fast Life. I'm Nick Orta. I'm your host. On this show, we look to break down the stereotypes of what the Christian looks like to the world by receiving testimony of action sports athletes and other athletes and just individuals across the world. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and fastlifeministries.com to give. Hope you enjoy this episode. So yeah, good good morning. Uh, we're going to embark into another round of this Fast Life Ministries um, Faith in the Fast Life podcast. We're going to call this one But God, and we're going to do a series on this. And this morning I have Tony Carcel with me. He's from the Dream Center out of Denver, and Tony has quite the story to tell. I've heard parts of it, but now we're sitting in a podcast booth. We're so thankful to have you, Tony. So thank you for being here and just for this opportunity. I think it's great. So, man, it's it's your mic, brother. Well, but, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, my story is one of just abandonment, fear, uh, untrust. Started young in the New York City foster care system. At four years old, uh, my parents gave me up. They were, from what I understand, uh, drug, drug addicted and were no longer able to care for me. So I started my journey through the foster care system. And the first family that I immediately was placed into were a loving older couple. And, you know, I thought that was going to be my new mom and dad. And within a year or so, I wound up getting moved from that family. And I was really hurt by that. And I feel that at that time... You know, I can remember almost clearly that I had made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to love anybody again. I wasn't going to receive anybody's love again. And so I went through six different homes from that period till I was 12 years old and, you know, suffered a lot of physical, emotional, uh, sexual, and, and mental abuse. And as each each event went on, I just went deeper and deeper into not accepting anybody's love. But I did learn at a real early age that I could be removed from a home by just misbehaving. I didn't have the courage or the the know-how on how to just say what was going on and get out. Right. So, so you, you purposely misbehaved so you'd get pulled from each home. Right. But about what year is this? That was in probably 76, 77, 78. Okay. Mm -hmm. About 12 years old. 12, right. Up, up until 12 years old. Okay. And things from uh, starting fires, vandalizing, uh, fighting people in school, stealing. And I just knew after a period of time, they may hold on to me at first, but then I would just get worse and worse and worse until they finally said, we can't handle them anymore. So I did that for a while. Then I went to a group home, and in the group home, again, experienced um, some trauma. And I got taken out of there. And then I went to my last foster home at 12 years old. And they were loving. They, were, they had four of their own children. Um, the father was a New York City police officer. The mom was a stay-home mom. 
And then they always had four or five foster kids running around. So at that time, I made a decision. I said, okay, well, I was old enough now to know that at 18, I could leave and be on my own. So I decided, okay, I'm still not going to receive their love, but I'm going to be good. So that way, I, I liked it there. Right. I could stay there. And, you know, I went through the seventh grade, the eighth grade, ninth grade, pretty introverted. Didn't really uh, develop a lot of friends, you know, was just kind of isolated. And their biggest complaint was always that I never voiced my feelings. I was always the same, whether I was happy, whether I was sad, whether I was mad. I just was just quiet. I just yeah. didn't say anything. Just internalized all of it. Internalized everything. So after that, you know, I got into my 10th and 11th year in a high school and started becoming a standout star in basketball. And then I started to develop another problem, which was identity. I, I like ran into an identity crisis. I didn't know who I was because I was always the Nicky's foster kid or Wayne's foster brother. It was always foster associated with who I was. So I kind of felt inadequate at the time. I felt, you know, un, unappreciated. Even though they were so wonderful to me, I still felt unappreciated because I, I wasn't my own self. It was, you would never express that. Right, and I never like, expressed Like, that's what it. you felt, but nobody else ever knew that, right? Nobody else ever knew that. And I've talked to people since from high school and stuff, and they're like, really? They said, you were so bright, and you were so happy, and you were such a star, and you were this. And I said... But that's not who I was inside at all. So I came into my senior year, and same thing. I could have graduated high school early if I wanted to, but I just wanted to play basketball in my senior year. So I took a couple of electives and, and like an English class or something just to be able to stay in school. And I graduated, no problem. Um, had a few college offers to play basketball. So again, it was the identity issue the families I was raised with, I would say all of them were were Caucasian families, mm -hmm. and I'm black and Puerto Rican, so there was that identity issue. So when it came time to choose a college, I chose a black university. That's where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. They didn't want me to go to the school I picked, but I took it that they were trying to tell me what to do to go to a white school, basically. So I picked the school and I went, and it wound up being a disaster. They were right, <laughs> not because of color, but because they just knew what was right, and it was a bad choice. But anyway, when I got to college, I immediately shifted to smoking weed and women. That was all I focused on. That was all I cared about. So by the end of that first year, I was academically ineligible, lost my scholarship, and then I didn't know what I was going to do after that. So you had a scholarship for sports or for academics? For sports. For sports? Yeah. What was your For sport? basketball. Basketball. My sport was basketball, yeah. That's, that's awesome. And uh, just something, if I could backtrack a second. So when I was smaller, I went to Catholic school, which I really felt safe there. Um, I did have instances of abuse there, but I still felt safe with God. Huh. I hated... The church, in a way, this was kind of hard to explain. I hated the church 
but I still believed in God and, and still was comfortable with God. I just hated the church. So as I got older, you know, I was still holding on to Jesus and Jesus on the cross. That was the story that I believed and that was the story that I accepted. But that was it. I just believed and that was it. Like I believed in any other story, but I just believed that that story was true. And so I grew up, I left school, I wound up joining the Navy and I served in the United States Navy for about three years. And same issues. It was smoking weed and women. But by this time, I started to realize that I had a tendency to be aggressive with women, um, emotionally and, and physically. Mm-hmm. And that's when some of the domestic violence issues started to arise in my life. And... So at this point, Tony, if I can interrupt, like mm-hmm. you, you, you believe in the story of Jesus that He died on the cross for right. our sins, and and you're a believer of that, but you've kind of fallen into smoking weed. So it's fair to say that you weren't really following Jesus. No, you're no. just a fan. I of was Jesus. just. We talk about that a lot on this show about being a fan versus being a follower. So you're a fan and you believed, but you weren't walking with Him, so it was easy to stray. Easily. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't walking with Him at all. But when I got in trouble, I would turn to Him. God help me if you can this time I won't do it again type deal. Right. And as soon as he helped me out, I'd be back on the walk, you know, straight away from him. So I started having issues with with domestic violence and substance abuse. And by this time, after I had joined the Navy, I was introduced to crack cocaine. And I feel from the very first hit I was addicted. That's how I, that's how I look at it because that's what happened. Yeah. I was on the chase after that for about 15 years trying to chase that down. Um, got married, went through that marriage, got divorced, got married again, went through that marriage, and in that marriage she passed away, but it just gave me a reason to further go into the addiction of, of smoking crack. Because that... that pain that you feel like you have to escape it in some way. Right. And that was the way I found that was a, a easy escape for me. And to just put everything else in the back on the back shelf, you know, and it, it was a constant struggle. And the same thing, I would use God to help me, but I didn't walk with him after. I would just use him every time, pick him up and put him back down, pick him up and put him back down. It's a selfish, selfish way of uh, yeah of worship, if you will. Yeah, and uh, you know, so after, like I said, this was um, up until ninety five, nineteen ninety five. That's when I had married uh, my second wife, and she passed away in nineteen ninety eight. So in nineteen ninety eight, um. You know, I kind of went back and fell into the drug thing, and um, just so that, con- that time period when you were married to that second the wife. Second like, did one. we were you clean at that point? I was clean from crack, but okay. I was still drinking, still drinking, and doing mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah, I re- I wasn't even really smoking weed. I was just drinking. Okay. Because she was that a lot? Was that you know more than no, normal, or is it, it was just, just the occasional normal, drink? Just occasional, the socially accepted level. Socially accepted level, right? Okay. So I kind of put everything on hold because this second marriage I was 
thought in love for real. Like I was going to really receive her love. And I think that's why I was able to start not using at that time. But then at the same time, I felt like I was looking for an excuse that whole time to have to use. So when she passed away, it was like, yes. Here's not yes excuse. that she died, but yes, I can use again. So I can relate to that. And, uh, and you know, with my addiction, I was addicted to cocaine. And I did crack a few times. Um, you know, thank God I didn't, I didn't get deeper. I mean, like, like my story is any better of how much deeper you could go, right? But mm-hmm. I, I understand that addiction. Like I used to purposely pick fights with my girlfriend at the time just so that we could get in the argument so that I could be like, well, she doesn't care anyway. And then it was an excuse for me to use. So you had some willpower to hold your own will for that period of time to hold off and hold off and hold off. But you, I understand that excuse. I understand right. that, that you're just looking for the reason to go back to it. I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after that, then I roamed around for a little bit just on my own, very short time. And then I met this young lady named Deneen and, you know, we kind of hit it off right away and fell in love, if you'd say, right away. And But it was dysfunctional right from the start. She was the drinker. I was a drinker hiding my crack addiction. She knew about my past, but I swore up and down that I would never do it, smoke crack again. We could drink together, we can smoke weed together, but that I was not going to smoke crack. And she told me, she said, if I ever catch you smoking, that will be done. That'll be it. So we was together for a little while. We might wound up moving in right away together. And uh, sure enough, before long, she caught me. And, you know, she didn't follow through. She still took me and kept me. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, and I did a report later on in the newspaper, in the Denver Post about domestic violence and they had a couple cases and I was one of them and just told them my story. And I told them it, it's like a riddle that's hard to solve because if somebody promises you that they're going to do something and then they don't do it, then you kind of know they're kind of stuck after that. They're trapped into that cycle right there. And it, it's a hard, you know, it's hard to tell anybody that, but it's, it's kind of the truth. I've seen it time and time again where somebody gets trapped into a relationship. You're saying that she was trapped because she told you that she was going to leave you if she caught you. Right. But now that she was there, it's like you, I mean, essentially in your mind, you got her where you want. I got her where I want her. Because right. you you can do whatever you want. Right. She's not going to follow through on what she said. So right. therefore, I see what you're saying there. Right. So she's kind of trapped in that position. Right. Because now it becomes a, well, I'll leave you if I catch you to a, I can fix you because you've gone deeper into your relationship and your emotions and all that. So now it's more, I'm a, I can fix you. I can handle this and fix you. Yep. So we wound up having a real volatile relationship. You know, we had, I believe, seven domestic violences between us. You know, she'd go to jail, I'd go to jail. She'd go to jail, I'd go to jail. And uh, we'd always come back. We'd leave for a month, leave for two weeks, and sooner or later, either one of us would come back out of love. And I know that was kind of, it was definitely a distorted love, but 
we were we were in love and we kept doing that for almost three years and our friends our family friends they would always tell us you guys need to stop right. you need to stop or somebody's going to wind up getting hurt so did did it, i mean at this point you still believe in the cross and what Jesus did on it. Where was she at in faith at that point? Was she a believer at all? She was a believer, yeah, through family and raising. Okay. You know, her her family and, and grandma and, and aunties and them were pretty faithful and, you know, involved. Um, yeah, so we kept on this track, and in November of 2001, you know, I, I made— a bad, a bad decision. I mean, I I felt at the time, not to make excuses. I've always taken full responsibility, but it was one of those situations where I'm, I wasn't going to get hurt again. And she had decided that she was going to. She was done with it. She was tired. She was going to leave, and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and you're just, saying that you don't want to get hurt again because going back to your childhood that you had been hurt by so many foster families and so many different things. Right. So like you had that scar, you weren't, you weren't allowed allowing that wound to be reopened. To be reopened again. Right. And the, the other thing I failed to uh, include in that was infidelity. You know, you got drugs, alcohol and infidelity all in one pool. I mean, it creates a, a disaster. Which the, the drug addiction alone is like infidelity. I know when I, now my wife, but when we first met and started dating, I was still in the midst of cocaine addiction. And she couldn't understand. But like, we would not go on a date one night or whatever because I was basically cheating on her with a drug. Right. Um, I never actually cheated on her, but I. Right. the drug but was you my did. mistress. Right. And, and, yeah, so I get it. I mean, that that is infidelity mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. You're saying there's also Sexual, other women. Sexual, yeah, and, women, yeah. other women, other men, whatever it was for each of us. And it, it just finally came to a boil. So in in November, November 1st of 2001, I took it upon myself to end the relationship by tragically taking her life. And immediately, you know, I, I knew I messed up. I mean, I knew this couldn't be fixed. This couldn't be taken back. It, it just, I knew I was in trouble. And as serious of a situation it was, I walked around the corner and got a beer, you know, and came back and drank two 40 ounces and thought about it, seen what I had done, and again, left again to get some crack, you know, and came back. Not like anything was wrong, just came back and sat there and just kind of processed what was going on and what I had did. And so I waited there for a little while and then I left and went down to Koufax, Washington Street on Denver, known crack locations, and uh, scored and just kind of was in a haze, you know, over what, what had just happened. You, you felt, you knew that it was wrong and you had a feeling about that, but what's so typical of most addicts is numbing that feeling with drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're escaping again. Right. So you'd, you'd done this, you'd gone too far, you knew it. 
and now you're escaping it. Right. So then I got arrested and and um, I didn't have to go to trial. I wound up taking a deal and I received a 48-year prison sentence. And I'll never forget through sentencing, you know, the family, they get to speak and about 10 of them spoke and the first nine were her aunts and uncles and her mom, her grandma. And they all, you know, damned me to hell, basically. Uh, said they would never forgive me. Uh, just, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I was able to take it. I, was, I, I deserved it. I mean, I knew that. And by this time, I had already started going to church regularly and Bible studying because I was in the county jail. So, like, I ran to that right away. And, you know, the first thing I thought when they started saying those things, I was like, God, just forgive them. They don't understand. They don't understand what they're saying. And I don't know if that was selfish or not, but I believe it was true. Because they don't, you you know, you can't. You know, from my beliefs in Scripture is you have to try to forgive wherever, you know. Well, the Bible says you forgive it. What is it? Seven times, but seventy. Right. Seven right. times seven times. I, I'm bad at. Yeah, and scripture, then if right. you can't forgive your brother, neither will thy father in heaven, and and that type of stuff. So I just kind of thought of that as the the same idea. So I just wanted to pray for them that that wouldn't be held against them. Yeah. You know, because I could understand. So the great revelation through that whole thing was the father. He went last, and he got up, and he called me Anthony. He always called me Anthony. And he looked at me, and he said, Anthony, he said, you really hurt us. You really hurt us bad. But I forgive you. And it seems like from that moment, like this big weight was lifted off my back. Like I was able to do my you know, my statement of apology. And I left the court, like, feeling satisfied. Like, I got my punishment. I took responsibility. But I got forgiven. You know, especially by the dad. That, like, meant a lot to me. So I went back to the cell um, and cried. Laid on my pillow and cried. And I, I had held it all in up to that point, like through my whole 18 months of the court proceedings. Never budged on my emotions, just stone-faced. Back to like you were when Back you were a kid. Where you I just was. internalized every bit of it. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine who I had met, he came up to me after sentencing. I was laying on my bed, and he like just sat next to me on the bed, and he put his hand on my back, and I just let it all out just like cried and cried and cried. And I did that for a little while, and then he said something funny and just made me laugh. And like, we just sat up and I hugged him and said, thanks, man. And I wound up going to prison then, and that was in 2001. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got to prison, I just started doing the same things again. I was just, the vices, the gambling, the pornography, you know, sneaking in cigarettes, just trying to be just 
just um, unchanged. So but, once, once again, you got you got close to God when you needed him, mm-hmm. but now you're in prison and you're accepting the fact that I'm going to be here for a while. So it's right back to the old ways. Right. And so I did that for a while and wanted, you know, I went off to prison and that just increased, just got more deeper into gambling. I basically transferred the addiction. I told myself, I'm not going to do any more drugs. And I haven't since then. And not even prescription drugs. I didn't want to do anything. But I transferred it to pornography and gambling then. Gambled every day, all day. That's what, that's all I did. I was known as a gambler. And about two years of that went by. And I don't know what it was. I like to think it was it's the spirit. But something hit me. And I was like at the lowest low. It wasn't because I had lost any money. It wasn't because I won money. It wasn't because anything was so bad. It was just that I just got tired. I was just tired. I said, you're going to do this like this for the next couple of decades or longer? And I was just like, I can't. I can't, I can't do it. And just, you know, you hear this story all the time, but just in a cell by myself, I just got on my knees and, and just wept a little bit and just say, God, I can't do this. I got to have you in my life. God's to. And we got these little phone books and they had the sinner's prayer on it, you know, on the inside. And I took that and I just read it. And then I told myself, wait a minute, just, you got to do it again. You know, it was like a retake. <laughs> like, Okay, but mean, you got to really mean it this time. I believe I meant it the first time, but I just wanted to reassure <laughs> that I meant it. So I said the sinner's prayer, and I thanked God and went and went to sleep. So the next day I got up and kind of like shook myself off, you know, and yeah. said I look the same, kind of feel the same, you know, like expecting this major thing. But there was something different. Like, I just had something different about me. Yeah. And so I just I just started off, and things got harder for a little while because I had all these vices. And for a while, I was going to church. I was doing Bible study, but then I would go on, on a gambling table, you know, do this, be involved in that. And just little by little, I wound up having a great mentor, my friend Roger, who— wound up doing 40 years in prison, and he was saved this whole term. But he became my mentor, you know, my, my spiritual dad, my friend, my brother in Christ. He, like, became all these things, and I would watch him every day, and he was just so disciplined with everything he did. He had prayer time. He had worship time. He had a Bible study time. He had all these times, and in prison, I mean, that was hard to do. And I was like, how does this guy do this like that? And I just kept watching him and watching him, and he would always grab me and walk, you know, and say, let's go. We're going to Bible study. We're going to go do this. Can you help set this up? Can you help? And then I just started to be more and more and more involved in the church. And I know that still doesn't mean, you know, doesn't it means a lot, but it doesn't mean anything, kind of, one of those things. But then I started feeling it, like, inside of me. Like, I started choosing church and Bible studies over playing cards or just not doing anything. 
And little by little, everything started shaking off. Everything started coming off. I started being more vocal in treatment classes and exposing some of the stuff that I had went through and and just really trusting, like, all right, God, I'm going to share this. Don't Don't embarrass me. Don't allow me to be ridiculed. Don't, you know, all these things. And, and he didn't. He gave me the strength to say it and, and stand tall on it. So and how old were you at this point? So I went to prison when I was 36. I would say that was about between 36 and 40. So I would say in, in my 40s is when that started to take change in so my this life. this is 40, 35 plus years of feelings that you had bottled up and Push mm-hmm. down inside, all starting to come out. Mm-hmm. How incredible was that feeling? It w- it was amazing. It was. I hadn't cried. I hadn't cried in a long, long time, and then I had cried multiple times, like <laughs> dozens of times in that short period of time. So it wasn't always crying of of fear or of sadness. Most of it was crying of joy that I was finally able to release all this stuff that was inside of me that was just holding me back and was just like tormenting me for all those years, you know? And so with his guidance and and my determination, um, God just started, he just started working, making a work in my life and opened up so many opportunities while I was in prison and just, just taught me how to love people, you know, because it got to a point where I kind of shook off all of the, I call them easy stuff, easy sins, you know, the pornography, the, the, and I'm not minimizing it if people have problems with that. But for me, those were the kind of the easy things to shake off. But the hardest thing to shake off was the gambling. The gambling stuck with me for almost 13 years. Even after I was, I felt I had become a pretty solid Christian I, I just had the issue with the gambling. And then I came to find out later on my own, kind of, with with the spirits nudging that the reason I gambled for so long was because I really didn't want to let it go. That was the last thing that I had that gave me comfort that was like a vice. That was The only bit of the old you. The only bit of the old me, and I did not want to let that go, and I kept trying to make excuses for it. Oh, so you're going to tell me that there's no Christians on the World Poker Tour? You're going to tell me that? And it was just an excuse because we weren't on the World Poker Tour. <laughs> it was some jailhouse illegal gambling. And so finally, when I finally said, okay, God, I'm done with it. I don't want to do this no more. He took it away in an instant. In an instant. And guys didn't believe it. You know, I told guys, I'm done. I ain't gambling no more. Yeah, right. We'll see you tomorrow or later or whatever. And then they would ask me for about a month every day. Come on, T. Come on, man. Nope. I'm good, guys. Told y'all I'm not gambling no more. And I didn't didn't gamble no more after that. And, you know, I know God delivered me from that. But it was finally because I didn't want to do it anymore. He wasn't going to force me to stop. He allowed me to make the decision to stop, and then he took it away from me, you know. And so I kept going in my prison sentence, and um, I became stronger and stronger as a Christian. My life became much better. He started restoring my family. 
while I was in prison. Um, my youngest daughter, who's 30, her name's Kobe, she uh, she rode this out with me. She walked it all down with me. She never wavered. She never, you know, she just loved on me unconditionally and just couldn't wait for me to come home. Then some of my foster family started coming in my life, which was great. And just friendships were formed, old friends, and just the people that really cared, I think, that I hadn't really harmed or destructed the bridge to them. You know, it was, they were kind of just like in my circle, but kind of just hanging out on the outside because they didn't want to be part of the destruction, and which was smart. And I'm grateful for that because I was able to salvage a lot of those friendships and relationships. And so fast forward to 2020, where I had put in for community the first time, community corrections. And, you know, I was pretty optimistic about getting it. And I got denied the first time. And I did everything I could do inside programs and just everything I could do. Uh, No trouble, no problems. And some of it had to do with victim impact. They kind of, you know, objected to the fact that I was going to get released. And I said, all right. By this time, I said, okay, God, you're in control of everything, right? There's a certain time for me to get out, and if it's in your will, I'll get out. If not, then I'll just keep plugging forward and until the time comes. So then I put in the second time, and that was in mid-2020, and I got accepted. You know, and I asked my case manager, I was like, did anybody object to it this time? And she was like, no, they didn't get anything. Everything was good. So I just, you know, thank God again. I I prayed for them. You know, I, I always still hope and I wish that I could talk to them and tell them how really sorry I am. Um, And so I got out. And I went to a halfway house in Denver. I was pretty shocked coming out. You know, 20 years incarcerated, you come out and you think you're kind of normal, but you may still be normal, but everything around you doesn't seem to be normal, especially after that long period of a time. So I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of insecurities. Um, you know, and some of the fear was on retaliation. You know, you you always wonder if somebody's that mad still, you know. And so then I really had to get with God on this one. This seemed more urgent than 20 years ago for whatever reason. It, it was just real urgent. I said, God, I, I need your help. I, I can't do this. I can't. I don't want to go crazy. I don't want to do something stupid. I don't want to go back. So I need your help. So I tried to do it on my own for two weeks. I didn't know how to move around in Denver on the bus. I got this new 2020 phone that I don't even still, six months later, I'm only about 5% capability on it. That's me too. (laughs) And everything was really hard. Like I was breaking down, crying, crying. my case manager was great. She really handled me well. Um, so one of my friends, Daniel Diaz, which you guys met, um, he kept calling for me 
over at the halfway house. Tell Tony to come to the Dream Center. Tell Tony to come to the Dream Center. So after trying it on my own for two weeks, I said, okay, I'm going to go down there. So I went down there on January 11th, and I'm like real hesitant, real leery of what's going on, and I get to the door, and I knock, and I can't remember who answered the door, but I said, hey, is Daniel Diaz here? He's like, yeah, he's in here. So I go into the cafe that we have there, and it's already packed as, you know, two dozen people in there. So right away I start getting all freaked out, and I see Daniel, like, across the room and try to, like, give him that wave, you know, acknowledge me, please. And he comes running over, and I was like, okay, good. My friend's here. So soon after that, Pastor B, he introduced me to Pastor B, to Jennifer Sanders and Luke, I believe. And, I mean, in an instant, they just, like, wrapped their arms around me, spiritually and physically, you know, and and they, like, received me like like no other. Like, I had never been received before. And just a note for the listeners, this is uh, pretty much while COVID is still happening, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was no fear of that. The Holy Spirit (laughs) defeats COVID, in case anybody's wondering. And, you know, they wrapped their arms around me and said, man, welcome. You know, they just made me feel really, really at home, at peace. And Daniel was like, yeah, this is the guy I was telling you for the discipleship program. And Pastor B's like, you're in, man. And he gives me a journal, a pen. He says, have a seat wherever you want. And that was my first Monday morning meeting at the Dream Center's discipleship program, staff meeting. So through the next 90 days, it was a grind. You know, it was, they're trying to work with me. I'm trying to work with them. We're trying to figure out what's going on. I got medical appointments, bank accounts to open, uh, license, IDs, social security cards, all these normal things that people just do it like nothing. For me, it's a big event, every single one of them. You know, I need an entourage with me basically to go just to be sure that I don't run <laughs> or or panic or, or just, you know, I can remember sitting in the bank for the first time and Daniel and, and Luke are outside in the van and they're like, you want us to go in with you? I said, no, nah, I think I got this. And so I go in, I sit down, there's a beautiful young lady in front of me, uh, armed guard behind me, you know, few customers, so I'm starting to sit there going through the information. I I don't even know how to press, I don't even know how to press OK to to confirm something on the little keypad. I don't know how to use the electronic pen. I'm like really starting to feel embarrassed. And the the girl was so sweet, you know, because right away I told her, I said, yeah, I just got out after 20 years and I may need your help with some of this. And she was so you know, kind and, and warm about it. She uh, she had questions, which I thought was pretty cool, just interesting questions, you know, how was the food <laughs> and stuff like that. But So anyway, I'm still getting kind of pretty stressed out and, and panicky and sweaty. And then, like, in that instant, I get a text from Luke. And he's like, you all right in there, buddy? You need us to come in? And then that kind of just, like, brought me down. And I was like, all right, my guys are out there. I'm good. Finished the process, went out, you know, kind of held my card up with a big smile, and uh, we went and ate lunch, and that was another day of discipleship and helping us re-enter back into the community, you know. 
So that's a, in, in your words, obviously we've got your whole incredible story and, and watching you transform and being able to sit here with you now and, and see the man that you are and, and the man that God intended you to be that whole time. Um, we have our ups and downs and our hiccups in life. And, and this is part of your story and part of the gift that God's given you to be able to share this to help others. And the Dream Center, you know, I wasn't even 100% sure of what all you guys did. So hearing that makes me think about how many other guys come out and don't have that support. And, and you know, my mind goes to the fact that, you know, we, we, uh, we call them habitual, mm-hmm. you know, prison attenders. Like, they just go back, but you get overwhelmed. I mean, something that's just a normal process to me to go by the bank to do a check, get an ID, mm-hmm. go to the courthouse, whatever else is overwhelming to them. And therefore that pressure, especially if they don't know the Lord can really turn them. Right. You know, and, and, and spook them to where they go right back to the old, to patterns. the old behavior. Yep. Exactly. So the one thing that the dream center does with anybody we try to come in contact with, but specifically our, our thrive program, the reentry part of it, guys coming out of prison or out of community corrections, is the repurposing. Now, of course, everything is Christian-based, you know, founded on the, the words of Christ, and that's what we stand on. And, But it's the repurposing. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out. I didn't know if I wanted to train dogs, if I wanted to cut hair, if I wanted to do these other trades that I know. I didn't know that I was going to be 24 hours, seven days a week, serving the community. You know, I kind of thought of it and wanted to, but that's who I am now. That's yeah. what I want to do. That's that's what I love to do. And there's no greater joy than, than whoever it is, whether it's a poor man or a rich man, a saved man or unsaved man, to just give, to just love on them. And no... No bias, no nothing. Just, just love on them, and just, just give them everything you got. You know, it's, it's life changing. I mean, that's that's what that's what I do now. Yeah. I seen this guy. I'm a barber by trade, and I seen this guy on a on a 60 minute clip, and he says, "I love what I do, and I do what I love." And he said, "Ask yourself, what would you do for free?" And that was the first thought that I had. I would cut hair for free. So now we're getting ready to hopefully implement that into part of the Dream Center as just being a street barber, just walking around and serving the homeless. Uh, We got the Youth Academy coming up soon, which when school restarts, kids are going to need haircuts for school. And and so, you know, it's just build on that, build on on just living that, that dream, you know. It's a sacrifice in a lot of ways, but it, the reward is so great. That's incredible, Tony. We're so just so grateful to have you here, man. So as we always as we come to the end of the story here, I always ask every person on the podcast if there's one thing that you want to say to the listeners, whatever it is, if they're a believer, non-believer, anybody that's listening, what's one thing you want to leave them with today? Um, I know for me, and I would hope for everybody that the greatest decision you will ever make in your life will be to receive Jesus Christ. That's, that's my hope for everybody. And it's just a great decision. Yep. 
Simple. Simple. Simple, simple but true. Jesus, period. Period. He's, he's the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's awesome, Tony. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, look up the Dream Center. It's at dreamcenter.com. Denverdc.org. Denverdc.org to take a look at what the Dream Center is doing and all the other guys. Be on the lookout for the rest of the more of the Dream Center guys going to come through the podcast booth with me and uh, could do a little series, uh, But God. We'll call the series here as we roll out. FastLifeMinistries.com. Guys, please jump on the podcast. You know, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Like it. Subscribe to it. Follow us. Uh, commit so we can just share these stories with so many more. We, we uh, thank Tony for being here today. Thank you. And uh, we'll sign out on that note. Have a blessed day.